0: All right. Good morning. Let's uh, flip over to Acts chapter 20. I hope you guys are well. So last week in Acts chapter 20, we talked about uh, in detail Paul's message and how he uh, relates to us that his message was based on the gospel of grace. And we talked about how important it is to not deviate from that gospel, how there's many things that can creep in to challenge that gospel um, as far as you know what it takes to be saved and these different things. But ultimately, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest anybody should boast. And because of that, uh, or I should say, well, yeah, because of that important foundation of the grace of God in a life, because of the important foundation that the work of salvation was all done in Christ, that when we move away from that message, uh, it really skews the trajectory of our Christianity. And if I begin to think that it's my works that save me or my works that, that continue, or, uh, to continue to bring God's favor to my life or these different ideas, that all of a sudden, as it says there in uh, Romans, speaking of the life of Abraham, Romans 4, that if anything is reckoned by works, then we make God a debtor. In other words, if I my salvation or my sanctification is now based on me working hard for it, it's no longer God's gift to me. But now it's that He owes me. I was a good boy. Now you owe me heaven, and that's an absolute terrible way uh, to relate to God. And ultimately, when we relate to God uh, on a basis of works, it typically leads us to two places: we're successful, and it leads us to pride. Because, doggone it, we're good Bible readers and we're good churchgoers and we you know, help old people across the street and we do it. And God's glad to have us on our team. Or we fail miserably at it and we set up these standards or someone else's standards of what it means to be, to be godly and to be saved and then we, we don't achieve those things and it leads to condemnation. And either one of those endings, at the end of the day, they lead to a shipwrecked faith. A faith that just either says, I give up. Because I can't do it, so I'm not going to bother with this anymore. Or a faith that just says, I'm great, and everybody should know me because of it. And then we really fall short of what God's kingdom is about. So in in talking about the message this week, as we alluded to last week, I want to talk a little bit about relationship and how relationship is achieved with God, but with one another. You know, if we look, if you don't mind, flip over there in Acts chapter uh, 20. We're going to use this as a little bit of a, uh, a jumping off position. But in Acts chapter 20, verse 36, this is Paul meeting with the Ephesian elders. It says, and when he had said these things, and that's he's challenging them about being elders, challenging them to love the flock, to look after the flock, challenging them to uh, resist false teaching, specifically about the gospel. It says, and he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, if you recall from the last couple of weeks, Paul has told them that he does not know exactly what's going to happen, but that he knows that when he reaches Jerusalem, that bonds and jail await him. And so that he's confirming that with them. But when you read this, and, and for me personally, and, and perhaps as we've gone through it for you too, this is such an iconic, such just a, a standout passage in the scripture. If it were the end of a movie, it, it'd be the, you know, that, that, uh, that emotional moving part where you have this person who's labored and worked and loved this people group for years, and now it's time for him to go. And as he's leaving, they walk him out. And you know, already coming from Ephesus to Miletus to meet him there, they walk him to the ship. And, and then somewhere, whether it's you know, in the port or on the beach or however it was, he, he prays with them. He says, let's pray. And just imagine that in your mind's eye. He's praying. They begin to weep and begin to lament the fact that he's leaving. He, they're never going to see him again. And then he goes to the ship and they leave him there. And as far as we know, they, they head back to Ephesus. And I think for most of us, because of the way we're created, there's, there's part of us that really longs for this, that longs for, for, for uh, platonic intimacy, that longs for a fellowship, a sharing. And there's a weird dynamic that can happen at church sometimes where the, sometimes the more people you're around, really in any place, but the more people are around, sometimes the lonelier you can feel. And I think for many of us, we, we, you read something like this and when you take a moment, you go, this is what life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this sharing. It's supposed to be this caring that that, that you can interact with the people at your church and and, and that have this and that if you were to leave, that there would be weeping about it. That when other people leave, there's weeping about it. But so often it it, it's just not the experience, is it? So often church kind of becomes this place where you kind of roll in, hang out, maybe how you doing, note the fact it's not raining where we live. What'd you do this weekend? Oh, you mowed? Me too, because it's sunny. And then we bounce out. And, and I'm not here to criticize anyone. Please, when you come away, don't think, all oh, James is trying to knock. I'm not knocking anybody. I'm just saying that the scripture has a certain dynamic and a certain narrative to it. And when we read it, I think for many of us, our heart yearns for that. But yet it still doesn't become our experience. And why is that? How does that happen? How do we have relationships like this? How can we be involved with one another like this? And that's what we want to talk about today. Paul, in verse 24, he has some interesting uh, commentary, and we're not going to rehash all of it, but in verse 24 he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And really what I want to talk about this morning is kind of just the tale of two courses, two different courses. There's two major courses that are going on in our world, and there's deviations and so forth, and we'll talk about that. But there's really two major courses, and they're mentioned in the Bible. And one is the course of this world from Ephesians chapter 2, and one is the course that God gives us. In this case, Paul he makes two mentions here. He says, I want, He says, my life is of no value to me. And that doesn't mean he, has feeling, he doesn't have any feeling of self-worth or he thinks he's worthless or some sort of kind of depressive or anxiety type of, he's not expressing that. What he's reflecting is what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 9, where he says if you, a person seeks to save their life, they lose it. But anyone who loses their life for my sake finds it. So what Paul is reflecting here is not a sense of worthlessness and depression, it's more the idea, and it's, it, it, we mentioned it last week, where he says, I account my life, he, it literally is it's of no logos, it's of no word. And he's, what he's saying is, I don't really find my, my life worth talking about. It's not something that I'm trying to express, expression of me. What he's saying is, the expression that he can give in the natural, it's not worth expressing. You might recall when he's writing to the Philippians, one of the things he says, he says, all those things that in my past, my, my Hebrew education, all this, all the things I could have had, the fame and uh, you know, being trained by the best and all that, he says, I count it to be done. literally poop. I, that's, he goes, that's what my, th- those past things are to me. And he says, I count it that way for or in exchange for or because of the knowledge of knowing God experientially. So as we reflect back here, what's being said, he's making the point again and just saying, my life, my things, establishing Paul, establishing my desires, they're not even worth talking about. I don't have a value for that. But he says the reason, there's a reason he doesn't have a value. This is really important about Christian life. Christian life is not just abstinence. It's not just not doing things. Have you ever felt like that before or heard teaching like that? That was just like, just whatever you do, make sure you don't fornicate and don't drink, right? And you're like, okay, well, I got one of those down. (laughs) Whichever one, I'm not saying, right? But it's, you know, that's, and it just becomes, that's what life becomes about. It's just not doing. Not doing stuff is a miserable life. Should we engage in sin? Absolutely not. Will it destroy us? It 100% will. But Christianity is not about abstinence. It's about fullness. It's about relationship. And he says here, he says, I have a course. And when you think about a course, it could be for a race, a race course. But ultimately, it's a direction. He does use the race course analogy in other places. He uses boxing and fighting in other places as an analogy for for walking with the Lord. But here he says, I have a course. And it's a God-given course. Human beings were meant for fellowship. I've watched a lot of uh, prison documentaries and stuff like that. I'm just kind of interested in social behavior and so forth. And one of the things that you see over and over again about solitary confinement, and this is not a judgment on the prison system. I'm not making some stance. I'm just saying that over and over again, when you see extended periods of solitary confinement, what happens to the prisoners is they literally turn into animals. And that's where they begin to try to throw feces out their door every time the guards come. I mean, think about that behavior for a second. That someone comes to a point in their life where they're literally willing to poop in their hand so that they can throw it out a small hole in the door. Or they take their clothes and they shove it into the toilets and they just keep flushing to get all the sewer water to run under, through them and under their door so the guards have to clean it up. And meanwhile, they, they never come out. They, have some, some, they get like an hour a day, maybe, to be outside by themselves. You look at what happens when people are stranded. You know, all the different things, whether it's you know the Mount Everest stories, which oh, they're obviously not stranded very long, or whether it's island stories or people adrift on boats. When you find them, they are not normal anymore. Have you noticed that? Have you watched any of those documentaries? There's all sorts of weird paranoias, all sorts of weird behaviors and thought processes. Human beings were not Designed to be alone. They're designed to be in fellowship. But what happens to us a lot of times is that there's two courses. In Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll look at it a little later, later, we're told that there's a prince of the power of the air, and we were blown about by him according to the course of this world. So what happens is you and I have a God-given course that was given to us when we got saved. And he also mentions a ministry. There are two different things. A course is you, what you're doing, who you are, where you're going. A ministry is your interaction to God, but usually with others. So we're just going to talk about the course today for the most part. So there's a course that God has given us to walk in, to be upon, and there's a course that the world has for us to go in. Now, the the interesting thing about a course, when I was five, uh, we moved from San Luis Obispo, California, to San Diego, California. And we moved on to a boat. And we lived on to a 42-foot sailboat for about five years till I was about 10. And my dad was huge into uh, nautical stuff. He was in the, in the Navy. Uh, and then when we, we got out, anyway, we were on this boat. And it was actually pretty nice, to be honest, a good upbringing, because literally every day I would come home from school and, like, jump off the boat into the water, and that was what I did every day. Although, I admit I was a little destructive. If PETA found me now, I'd be arrested. But... There Every year, there's this big bloom of, uh, what do you call those things, jellyfish, and I would just go around and spear them all. So don't tell anybody that, but I used to do that as, as a six-year-old kid. So we're, we have this, this boat, and typically, like my dad, or, uh, during the summertime, often my dad would come home from work, and uh, he would just drink a lot of coffee, and we'd sail all night through the night and go to Catalina. Uh, And as as a kid, it was great because you'd just wake up in the morning and voila, it was Catalina and and, you'd sail through the night. So the thing about this, about having a course is it needs a destination. It's really important if you're going to have a course to have a destination. Having a course, you can't have a course without a destination, right? You can just say, well, it's not about the destination, it's the journey. Well, that's cool. But if you have no destination, then you end up nowhere. Then your journey usually ends up confused. And for a lot of us, that happens as Christians. It, it, one of the things that Jesus told us about the end times, and this is fascinating to me, he said, "Because iniquity will abound, the love of many will grow cold." He doesn't say they'll become unsaved. He doesn't and, and read into it. It's, it's hard to say exactly the entire context, but he says the love of many or most it'll get cold because iniquity in abounds. Iniquity is the word for like the high-handed sin. There's trespass. There's three words that the Bible uses. There's sin, trespass, and iniquity. And in the Old Testament and in the New, the three words the Bible mostly uses. And the idea of iniquity is like rebellious sin. It's not just trespass, which is to venture where you shouldn't go, or sin, which is to miss the mark of of what God says is righteous, but it's to literally rebel. It's the high-handed sin. It's to say no, no to God. And perhaps society has always been that way, but what we know in our society is that is the leading theory of how to live in complete iniquity, to do whatever you want, to, that's viewed as freedom, to thumb your nose, to speak whatever word you want, to accuse who you want, to rage at what you want, to fornicate with what you want. That is our society and where it goes. And I don't know about you, but that can cause a disheartening effect. Have you noticed that? It can cause an isolating effect where you feel like, what am I doing? Have you ever been like, am I just crazy? I mean, like honestly, like I'm I'm trying to follow Jesus, but there's this whole 90% of the world that says this is actually what's right. And then they can make these weird arguments. You want to go, no, I don't, Ah," you know. He says, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And the, the difficulty of the course that God has for us is it's motivated by, it was prompted by, it was created by, and it's sustained by love. So when we can look around us and there's so much discouragement and so many things that can corrupt and isolate and discourage us, we can begin to come destinationless. We can begin to grow faint or weary in doing well. And that faintness oftentimes results in a retraction from fellowship, the thing we've always desired. Now there are different things that can cause us to retract. It can just be growing cold. You know, the the the, the letter to the Hebrews, Paul talks about: don't drift from the things that you've said, you've heard uh, from from him. There's don't neglect the things that you've you've heard, and then there's don't rebel against the things that you have heard. Almost almost like a like a progression. First, there's drifting, then there's neglecting, and then there's rebelling. And that's oftentimes how we work. And it can start in different ways. It can start because someone says something to us at church that we don't like. And so we go, we, we get offended, and maybe rightly so. I'm not, I'm not, please hear me out. I'm not trying to say if you've been offended at church, you're in the wrong. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is if you've been offended at church, there's a way to deal with that and stay on course. And there's a way to deal with it poorly and get off course. So a lot of times we can get offended. This is just one example. Then we begin to drift because we go, well, I don't want to go see that person that offended me. We don't actually deal with it. We just don't want to go see it. We don't want to deal with it. And then we neglect and we go, well, you know what? I'm already late, so, you know, it's just not worth it. And I'm just using church as an example. I mean, this could be really anything. And then after neglecting, finally we just go, I'm not going to go back because you know what? Those people wronged me. And now all of a sudden we've completely deviated from a course. Now the interesting thing is that if you you look over there in Ephesians chapter 2, we can also learn about the other course. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So while the Lord Jesus has a course, and we'll talk more about that, in a moment, there is a course of this world. Now, there's a whole play on words here, and you might have noticed it, or you might be familiar with it, because there is a course of this world, there is a spirit that is in the sons of disobedience. Now, the word spirit, pretty much unilaterally in the Bible, is pneuma in the Greek, which might sound familiar. You've heard of pneumatic tools, air-driven tools. The word pneuma means wind or breath. So, in what's happening here, you have the prince of the power of the air, the atmosphere of the world. That's the air. And he is the power, the dynamic behind this pneuma, this wind that is at work in the sons of disobedience, of which we all used to partake when we were unbelievers. Does that make sense? So, the picture is that there is an atmosphere and that there is a prince, Satan the adversary of our souls and of our, of our God, and he is blowing, or there is a wind from him that is pushing the world in a certain direction. So honestly, if you know, I'm not saying we should be super into conspiracies and spend all of our time with them, but the reality is we really shouldn't have a big problem that there are conspiracies, because it's literally one entity that's driving the course of this world. So be careful that we don't start to hate people that we think are part of conspiracies. We love them. We're not, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not our goal, to down human beings. But we can just know that there is a course that is being followed and is being blown along, and everybody in it, blown along by a prince, by someone with authority. He's also, by, in First John, he's called the God of this world. Not that he's, it's not like a colossal, we're not saying like, oh, we just hope that Jesus wins out. No, no, we're not saying that. We know, the, we know the end. We know, we know what's going to happen. But that doesn't stop right now from Satan moving and working. Why bring this up? Because there is a flow in this world that is constantly trying to blow you off your course. You might have experienced that, or we, we probably do on the daily. This, the, the fact is that uh, Paul puts it this way, kind of on a micro level. In, in uh, Romans chapter 7, he says, I would to do good... But the good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Now I just summarized like 20 verses. But the point being is that we should not be surprised that our old nature is stimulated and moved by what's happening in this world and even our own sin. So we have one course that's been given us by God. And now we have another course that's always an option for us. Not to become an unbeliever. I'm an eternal security guy, and I think I always will be. But to say that I can be derailed from what God has for me in my life. Now here's the thing, as individuals, when we read this passage, and you're just looking at it, you're like, this is what I want. It's what I've always wanted out of life. I want to be accepted. I want to be on the inside. This is... I mean, if you think about, it, this is one of the foundations of human existence. Why is high school hard? It's literally like a holding pen until you're 18. You just learn a bunch of facts, right? Why is it hard? You don't. When you, for for many of us, I mean, you, sometimes we're concerned about schoolwork or tests or whatever like that. But realistically, you're like, I don't, I want to fit in. I want to be accepted, right? You didn't you didn't go to this when you went you know school shopping with your mom, or your dad. And you picked out your clothes, you didn't go, what's the silliest thing I can wear? That's what I'll wear. None of us were like, I think I'll try to stand out and, and really, you know, draw attention to myself. That's kind of the thing now. But even that, you think about it, every style, whether you're a jock or you're a hick or you're a uh, nerd or you're a stoner or, you know, all the different groups that you have at high school, regardless of who you are. We all dress the same as our social group. And now there's even a social group, for example, that is just rebellious against society. So they wear wear weird, crazy clothes. But all their weird, crazy clothes look exactly the same as the other weird, crazy clothes of those sticking it to society. Right? Because no matter where you go, there you are. We desire acceptance at the absolute basic Core level. It's intrinsic to us. And the, another irony about that is we mock people when they expose the fact they do want acceptance sometimes. Isn't that the challenge of high school? Oh, you're just a wannabe. You're a poser. You're this, you're that. You're like, I just want to be able to go to class and have friends. It's so bizarre how we work. God created us with the desire and the need to be accepted. Because our course ends in fellowship with Him and with one another. So the course that when we are actively engaged in deciding and and walking in the course that God has for us, we will experience what we've always desired. But that's the big challenge, isn't it? Because the flesh and this world are always saying, no, that won't be enough. To walk with God won't be enough. You actually need this also. Whether it's a substance or a relationship or whatever it might be, it's not going to be enough. That's the cry of our society, and it's the cry of our sinful nature. You know, when you, when you chart a course, the interesting thing about it is that the, co- the destination is the most important thing, and the charting of it is the next important thing. Because if you don't know where you're going, you don't know what to avoid. And also, when you have a course, especially at night, a couple, when I got older, a couple times my dad would let me sit up there in the cockpit for a little while, and you know what it is? It's dark. You're going whatever, I can't remember how many nautical miles it is from, from, California, or from uh, San Diego to uh, uh, Catalina, or sometimes we would go to the Channel Islands, but I think it's like 20 something. And once you get like 10 miles offshore, it's pretty darn dark. And all you have is a compass. And so you're, you're going to your destination. you got the chart out and you have these things. If there's stars, you could whip out a sextant, but we're not going far enough you know, for our travels for a sextant. But what you have to do is you have to continually make sure that you're on course. You have to continually make sure that, that you are going in the right direction. You have to make course adjustments, especially when you're sailing. Because when you're sailing, you don't just go in a straight line because the wind doesn't work that way. I mean, it can if you're going just downwind, then yeah, you could have a straight line. But for the most part, you're going this way and the wind's blowing and then you have to tack back this way and tack back this way and tack back this way. And you go back and forth, constantly looking at your compass, making your uh, adjustments, your times, so that you can actually end up at Catalina. If you don't, it would be very possible to completely pass it especially if you're moving like the channel islands because there's nothing on them. And so if, you, if there's no lights, if there's no, then you could completely pass it. So knowing where you're going and knowing how you're going to get there are super important for, especially when you have, again, the, the pneuma of this life blowing at you. So, ah, anyway, i keep going. Sorry. I don't want to belabor a point because that's how I roll. The, uh, but I would like to, to take a look here at uh, John chapter 17. Because the point of our course and, and how to run it or sail it, however you'd like to look at it, is right here before us. It's given to us. So Jesus, in the night he's betrayed, he prays. This is one of the longest recordings of Jesus that we have. Obviously, the, the Sermon on the Mount is longer, the Sermon on the, on the uh, Plain. But this is... One of the longest recordings that we have of him speaking continually, and this one is, I think, special. It's my opinion, special because this is one of the few times where we see uh, laid out for us the, for as much as we know, the complete prayer of Jesus. So this is, you know, an entire chapter of what Jesus wants. Isn't that interesting? He's voicing in the night in which he's betrayed the last. Night he has on the earth, in his earthly body, and he's asking God, his Father, right, for what he wants. Now he says there, if you don't mind jumping in verse 20, forgive me for jumping into the middle, but he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only. So he's talking about these in this, in this context. He's talking about the disciples. Okay, They're walking with him. They're actually walking right now, and they're on their way to uh, the garden. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you loved—excuse me—and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire uh, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made myself known to them. Excuse me. I made known to them your name, and will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, obviously, there's a lot to talk about there, and there's there would be a whole probably sermon series in itself there. But the point is, in as a gist or as a, a culmination, Jesus is literally praying, and he's saying, "I want." all the people, these these people that are with me and everyone who will ever believe the gospel through their word to be unified, to be one. And then he says, and I want them, their unity, to be like the unity that I have with you. And then he says, I want that same unity that they have and we have to be combined that they would be one in me as I am in you. So again, like the... Theory is understandable, right? Okay, a lot of unity, right? How that would work is, is pretty, uh, probably worthwhile for some study. But the point is this. I want us to be one, and I want to be one with them. Think about that. That's the heart of Jesus. And then he says, I want them to be with me, where I am with you. So you are designed to be with God. I mean, all the way back to the beginning, that's what human beings did, right? They cruised around naked in a garden with God and there was no shame, no condemnation, just, you know, hanging out and trimming trees, basically. They tended the garden and they just ate from the fruit of the garden as they walked around there. And the the, the nudity, the picture is there's just no separation, no shame, just absolutely viewed by God with nothing to hide and viewing God and walking with Him. We're not trying to be crass or something like that. But that's that was God's original intention with humanity, and He will bring that original intention in the uh, intention back around and fulfill that. But in, in this time, it'll be in a complete and in a spiritual and physical way with our new bodies. So we'll have this amazing conglomerate. I don't I don't know what it'll be like. So it should not be abnormal for us. To feel lonely in this world. And I'm not saying we should feel lonely. I'm saying we shouldn't be surprised when we feel lonely. Because that's what we were designed for. Now, what stops that is sin. Every time. Sometimes it's other people's sin. We're not trying to to say that church is always right and we've been wrong as individuals. But if we're going to be honest, oftentimes it's our fault. So back to our example. We get offended or something doesn't go our way or whatever it might be. And then we retract and we say, I'm not going to make this right. And we're so crazy that once we retract, we begin to have all these weird thoughts in our head. And then we have all of Facebook to validate those weird thoughts for us. And, and, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper when we're like all these people. And oftentimes they're not believers they're just people from work or whoever they are, and you just, you, you, we, we just type something, this happened to me. And everybody goes, yeah, that person sucks. To hell with them. And we're kind of like, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. That's why I put it out there, because I knew I was right. And we, we, we developed this support for an offense. Now, you might be right. That person might have offended you and done something completely wrong. But you've jumped. I've jumped From God's course to the course of this world, as soon as I've tried looked for justification for me neglecting and separating myself from God's people and from His course, I say that with all the love and the respect in the world. My heart is not to condemn or destroy anybody. My my hope is to help you with your joy that if you're in a position now where you're retracting from fellowship, retracting from God's people and, and and, and becoming more angry and bitter, that's the thing. When we retract from God and from his people, we don't love them more. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's what Jesus told us. In other words, what you value, what you invest in, that's where your heart is. So when we retract from God's work, and can I just be, I don't want to be flippant, but be honest. The whole like, oh, I'm just at home worshiping in my own way right now. You're right if you're doing that. You are worshiping in your own way. Not God's. With all due respect, I'm not talking about being handicapped or COVID. or I'm not, that's, What I'm saying is if you are making conscious decisions to separate yourself from fellowship and trying to tag some godly line onto it, it's a lie from hell. And that's not condemnation, that's just the fact because you're removing yourself from what you were always designed to be part of, and that's God's people, as broken and jacked up as we are. Because one day we're going to be one. The Christian that you've hated the most, that I've hated the most, Christians that we've mocked on Facebook publicly, Christians that we've railed on, guess what? You will have some sort of unified consciousness with them in Christ for eternity, that's the truth of what God has for us. So we have, Paul says, I have a course. I'm going somewhere. And he confessed to it. It's going to be hard. The course is hard. I was talking to, uh, and I don't mean it's disrespectful, but I was talking to a really old lady one time. She was a believer. She loves the Lord, loved the Lord. And we were just talking. And uh, she went to our church. I was talking to her. And I just remember, because she was, like, again, ancient, straight ancient. Of course, I was, like, 17 at the time. So, you know, I mean, my dad was ancient, and he was my age. So clearly, he was very young. But this lady was, you know, seasoned. And I remember she just told me, she said, you know what, James? The sooner you realize that life is hard, the sooner you're going to move on with life. And I was like, I don't like that. I want life to be easy, but it's not easy. It's not easy because this world doesn't know you. This world doesn't know Christ. This world doesn't have the same values that we do, although it beckons for our values on the daily, doesn't it? It woos us. It draws us. Romans 12 says that it tries to conform us, literally slam you into a mold. That's what it means to to compression mold. This world is compressing mold. Have you ever seen, you can watch, I watch too much YouTube, but you can watch documentaries like on how they make some cans. It's like, the, it's like a piece of aluminum. Like I don't know, it's a little disc like this. And then, and, and then it, it drops into like, this metal cylinder and this huge ram comes down and goes, boom! And just, boom! And it just, it just compresses it into a can. That's the picture. Obviously, they didn't have cans like that. But the idea is a compression mold, that you're being compressed into an image. And the Bible is very clear that the world is hammering you, hammering you. Ha- be offended. Be angry. Do whatever you want to do, because that's what true freedom is. Righteousness is restrictive. But the reality is, even though that we're being pounded by that, the end of our course is what we've always wanted. It's the friendships. It's the kindness, it's the love, it's the fellowship. So anything that detracts from that, that's not from the Lord. Again, I'm not saying if your kid's in sports, like you're somehow sinning if you don't come to Bible study. I'm just making a simple point that if you are removing yourself from fellowship over offense or something like that, or even just discouragement, you're going the wrong direction. You're going the wrong direction because God loves you. And he has great things for you, and he designed you for something wonderful. We cannot sit at home because of some reason that is invalid and be upset that we don't have besties. We can't do it. It's a lie. We can't sit at home and rail on other people and then be upset that we don't feel close with people. That's not how human beings work. So Paul's had these relationships But he had the relationship simply because he walked with Jesus. And when we find other people that simply walk with Jesus, we can experience this kind of fellowship on this side of heaven. It is amazing, but it takes godliness. And here's what I mean by that. We have to love. We have to. We cannot have this kind of relationship. You know, Paul wasn't just all roses, right? We've read his letters of rebuke. We've read what he wrote to the Corinthians. (laughs) He says, says, do you know why I didn't come to you? I didn't come to you because if I did, I would have come with a big, fat rebuke. That's why I wrote you a letter. (laughs) It's amazing. I mean, Paul, he had hard things to say. They didn't love him because he always just blew sunshine at them. They loved him because they knew that he loved them. And that's his testimony. He says, I told you everything. He says, I'm I'm, I'm innocent of the blood of everyone's hands. I never withheld anything from you. I gave you the gospel of grace. I gave you how to walk with God. I gave you how to excommunicate people in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I told you everything you needed to know because I love you. It was for him that they wept. Not just some person who came along and said flowery things the proverbs are so true that the 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 smitings of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy our society breeds us to be offended and to let that offense leak into our entire lives and it is destroying us because unfortunately the church follows the society usually and it's destroying the church and it's destroying our society. Have you noticed you can't even talk to someone that you think might disagree with you? And it's not all them. I mean, we've got to be honest. It's us. We, we find it so difficult to love people that disagree with us. That is not the heart of Christ. Show me one person on the earth that completely agreed with Jesus. One. That person has never lived. We're constantly in debate with Jesus. We're con- but He loves us. He cares for us. He tends us. That course that He's laid out for us, a course of love, a course of being moved by His Spirit, His pneuma, the Holy Spirit, that course leads to where we want to be. And Satan's course, it leads to Death and destruction and theft. He robs us of our joy. We let him, though. He robs us of our fellowship. He robs us because we willingly set our sail to his Numa, even sometimes with iniquity, meaning we know what it's going to do, and we still do it. And then, crazily, because we're nuts. We're surprised that it doesn't work out in the end. (laughs) And then we blame him. Right? And then we blame him. Whether it's because we're self-medicating or relationships or you know, whatever it might be, just whatever he's like, hey, you shouldn't be involved with this. And we're like, no, 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 this will make me much more fulfilled. And then we get to the end of it, and the destruction occurs in our life, and we're like, You did this. Why didn't you stop this from happening? You're like, well, what do you want? What do we want? Do we want him to stop us from sin and then we have no choice and we're robots? Or do we want him to just allow us to go our way? We scream we want freedom and then we get upset when we have it. We're so weird. (laughs) And the whole time he's just saying, hey, I have this laid out for you where eventually you will be with me. And you can experience a part of that right now. But it's by completing our course, walking with him, listening to him, and there's and there's there's a, a macro level of that, meaning, like a large a large inclusive, right? That the course of our life is is towards him, but the macro cor- following the course on a macro level is made up of micro level transactions. In other words, the culmination of my small decisions on what course I will follow will ultimately decide the larger picture of my life. Does that make sense? And so in each one of these decisions that that we reach, Paul says this, he goes, I didn't count my life of value because I knew where my course was going. And so in every transaction that he had to make, whether it was talking to people, his life with Christ, private, public, all those things, he says those decisions had to be made for Christ. Those decisions were made by saying, oh, that's right. Temporal satisfaction and my life, they're not worth talking about. They're of no value to me. But, but, but what God has for me, this is of great value. So we know we're going to have difficulties. We know that, that, that tough times will come. We know that this world will try to conform us into their, to its image. We know that Satan is blowing uh, us along. We know that our own sinful nature and our own hearts betray us. Isn't it, that's, that's, if you can learn that, if I could learn that, we'd be so far ahead that the heart is desperately wicked, and who can know it? You know, there's other, other verses where it talks about guarding your heart. You know what the interesting thing is? We always talk about, it's always like in relationship books, like you should guard your heart. Don't get too attached to somebody. That's fine advice, but in most of those verses, the idea isn't guarding your heart from like, the inside out, like get away from my heart. The idea is guarding yourself from your own heart. <laughs> like you're taking sides against your own heart, like, hey, 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 calm down, you. That's not what God has for me. It's our hearts, our souls, because of how fallen nature are desperately wicked. We can't even know our own hearts. Maybe, maybe you've experienced that, where you're, like, you, you're having some sort of weird day or weird experience or weird feelings, and somebody's like, why do you feel that? way? like, I don't even know. I don't know. Or we've even been deceived by our own heart. We are just convinced that something is true. We're convinced that those people hate us, they wronged us, whatever it is. And then we come to find out we were so far from the truth, but we made an assumption. Man, that's Satan's course. That's this world's course. God's course is forgiveness and kindness, yielding to him, inviting him, listening to him. Evaluating, using wisdom, pursuing wisdom—these are all things that are there for us to do and to move forward with. Not to gain God's favor, but to experience fully what He has for us. Let's uh, let's lastly turn to John fifteen. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, John fifteen. The great thing about God, the great thing about our Lord is that you and I cannot get so far off the course as believers that we can't get back on. Nobody, while they're still alive, is courseless. Nobody is undone. Nobody's cast away. That's not how he works. All of us, in this very moment, can get back on course. Even even in a boat, you can be miles and miles and miles and miles off course, but by one simple adjustment of the helm or the rudder and you're right back heading in the direction that you needed to be. Now, there can be fruit from that. If you spend 100 miles, two degrees off course, well, you can end up 20, 30 miles away from where you were going. So you take longer. There's going to be fruit from that. You might have to, you might have to ration your food and your water might have to call for help. There could be all sorts of things that have to happen because you've gotten off course. But you can still get back on course. And that's really important that if you found yourself in a position or when I find myself in a position where I'm rejecting, having this desire in me for fellowship and all these things, but rejecting it at the same time because I've come up with some reason why I will not or cannot do it, you can repent. I can repent and get right back on course. Why is the course so important? Jesus says this in verse uh, 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Can I just make a side point on that? This is really important. (laughs) Jesus notes that the disciples could not bear what he had to say. Isn't that interesting? Because our society says, And unfortunately, sometimes the church says, you need to hear what I have to say. I'm telling you the truth and you just need to own it. And if you don't, you need to repent. And we crush people with our words. We need to make sure that the truth that we're sharing is appropriate for the people at the time that they need it. I think it's noteworthy that the Lord of the universe, the one who had every right and every evaluation to say, you have to accept this when I say it, said, hey, I have a lot to tell you, but you can't accept it right now. So I'm going to tell you some stuff later. It's going to come through the Holy Spirit. I think that's noteworthy. Let's let the Holy Spirit lead us when we want to speak truth into our brethren's life. And let's do it with love and with kindness and at an appropriate time. Anyway, he says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For I am in the wrong chapter. That's why I'm reading that. (laughs) You're like, what? That is a side note. That's an incredibly side note. Chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this that someone should lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. See, the Lord, he's speaking to them. And just prior to this, he says that your joy would be full. But he's speaking to them, and he's making the point. He says, Look, I'm speaking to you, I'm encouraging you, I'm drawing you. He says, Because I want you to be fruitful. I want you to be fruitful. And, 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 and that's not in the sense of like we're like ununionized factory workers and he's trying to really push us hard and take as much as he can. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want your joy to be full and to what comes out of your life to be joy and peace, right? To be care and love. What is, what is better? Is it, is it a better existence to hate and rage or to love? Loving is definitely harder because it comes from God and not from us. Rage is always easier. It's right at the tip of our tongue. Hoo! Offense is always easier. I can't believe you. Always easier because that comes from inside of us. It comes from our hearts. But we're now trying to live a new life through a new life source, the Spirit of God. God. So he says, I'm speaking this because the, the whole thing that he's referring to is abiding in the vine. Staying close to Christ. Listening to what he has to say and walking in that. And so he says, hey, look, I'm telling you to abide in me because it will give you joy and it will produce something out of you that if you're not abiding in me, it won't come out of you. You know, it's, it's funny. So growing up in California, you know, you like you buy a Christmas tree besides the fact it's like 150 bucks, you buy a Christmas tree, and then you have to get it out of your house like the day after Christmas, because it's like brown. I mean, I guess unless you live in Eureka, but for the rest of the state, you buy it like two weeks before, and it's brown, and you get it out of your house because you're all going to die by the next day if you don't. When I first moved up here, I remember the first, uh, actually, it was, we lived in Warrington. It's the second place uh, Tam and I lived. Uh, we bought a Christmas tree, and it was before the kids or anything like that, but we bought a Christmas tree. And I remember uh, we had a yard, and so I could, I don't remember why I took it down, but I was amazed. I was like, man, this thing, this stinking thing lived forever. So I threw it outside and just leaned it against the house, and, and just like, oh, I guess I'll get rid of it someday. And I am not joking. I am not lying. I went outside to do my first mow one April, and it was still green. And I was like, what in the world? (laughs) It lived a really long time. It didn't have like a lot of needles. It wasn't impressive, but it was still there. And and I don't know if you know this, like around here, like you trim stuff in your yard. It doesn't matter what it is. It seems to stay a really long time. And if like, if you take some things, you can like trim it, stick it in the ground, like flowers, for example, or you stick it in a vase of water, you trim those. They stay alive for a while, don't they? They don't just immediately die. When they stop abiding from their, in the vine, they don't just immediately die. They can look beautiful for a long time. But what you don't see is they're starving to death. And one day that flower will die. And you know what? If you were to do that with, say, like a, a, a part of a pear tree, you will never grow a pear. You can have a nice living branch for a long time, but it will never be fruitful. And it's the same with you and I. It's, we're weird because we, we start to neglect, we start to drift, we start to neglect, and we kind of go, that's not so bad. It's not so. I mean, I still got my church friends, we kind of hang out there and there. I'm, I don't pray so much because I'm living in rebellion to Jesus and it makes me feel weird to pray to Him, but I mean, it's not so bad. I still got my job, I still seem to have the blessings that I have, like I mean, really, what's the big deal, what's the big deal? And we don't realize that we're dying inside. We don't realize that the fruit's never going to come. We don't realize that that which we've always desired is never coming because we've removed ourselves from the life source. So what is our goal? What do do we have to do now, right? Because we don't have to do anything for our righteousness. Jesus gave us that. It's a gift. We don't have to do things to get to heaven. Jesus said, no, you're saved by grace through my blood. I purchased that for you. So what is the point of the doing? Because you can't have relationship without investing. Whether it's called abiding in the vine, or bearing fruit, or yielding, or repentance, whatever word we want to attach to it that defines different aspects of our Christian life, if we are not investing and following our course, we will drift and be blown to the course of this world. It's just how it works. We just think we're kind of doing okay because we haven't fully died yet like a branch. So what is, it, what is there to do? Number one, just be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. If we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing, I don't want to know. It's not my business. But if you're doing things that God is clearly telling you not to do, you need to be honest about it with God. Because because we're so weird and because we think we, we, we begin to think that we're okay, you don't want to end up on the end of fruitlessness. And I don't say that as like an accusation. I say that because it's a terrible life. I think all of us have probably lived that life more times than we care to admit. You don't want to end up there. So number one, be honest. Say, just tell the Lord, Lord, I, you know what? I think this is more important than you. This thing in my life, it, I think it gives me more life than you'll give me. I think the reality is that if I were to let this go, it would hurt too bad. I need to understand. I, I need to see you afresh. I need, I need to, I need you to speak to me. Because I'm honestly, I'm rebelling right now. Be honest about it. He, you're not surprising him. It's not like you know, somehow the eternal God has like, oh, what? Really? You know? It's amazing what honesty will do, too. I mean, how many times has Jesus asked them weird questions like, why are you afraid? These are great questions. Well, I don't know, Jesus. Maybe because we're on a sinking boat. (coughs) Maybe that's why I'm afraid. But it causes honesty. Well, I'm afraid that you're not going to help me. That's why I'm afraid. Why do you have so little faith? Well, I don't know, Jesus. Maybe there's 10,000 people to feed, and I got a couple of fish and a loaf. I'm afraid that... You won't give me enough. See, these are important questions asked. Why do I think that this, whatever it might be in my life, is really what I need to feel fulfilled and in fellowship and satisfied? Why do I think that? God, can you show me the error of my way? You can move forward. So, how do I move forward in that? You can grab a godly friend. Hey, pray with me. I'm really struggling with this. I really, I really, I know I need to be done with this, but man, it's just got a hold of me. And I know the scripture says that I can say no to it, but I just don't say no to it. And the thing that I want to do, that I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Was the experience of Paul? You are not stuck today. You are not courseless today. There are steps that you and I can take when we feel stuck or rebellious or just. Sometimes it's it's depression or anxiety. We just can't move. Sometimes it's just raw fear and desire and fear that comes from desire. I mean, grab someone, pray with me, help me. You have not gotten too far off course. You haven't. It's impossible because you're still breathing. And move forward with him. It's, It's simple stuff. I don't I don't say that in a belittling way. It's it's simple stuff. You're not stuck. You're not undone and God is not done with you. But you and I, we have to move forward. God's extending his hand. You ever seen the you know the pain, the, the uh, was it, the Sistine Chapel? It's one of my favorite. Cuz you have God who's like, oh, like straining to get to David and how's David? He's like on the cloud. That's what we're like. We're like, God, why don't you meet me? And he's actually like, come here. And we're like, why aren't you meeting me? Hmm." Move forward today. Don't buy the lies of Satan. Don't buy the lie of the pneuma of this world. Walk with God. Get someone to help you. Cry out to him. You will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your kindness to us. Lord, thank you for the cross that purchased our salvation. Lord Jesus, thank you for the body and the blood shed for us, your body. Lord, thank you for your heart for us, that you want us to be one with one another in you, in your Father. Lord, thank you that you have great things for us and your calling to us and your spirit is working. Lord, I pray that you would bless us with your presence I pray for, for us, like David, I love that psalm. When, when, I waxed, when I was silent about my sin, my bones dried up inside of me. I was like a pot shard. And I pray for us in love and mercy, please dry us up. Lord, please show us where the end of this, this life and this, and, and this pneuma from this world ends. And Lord, I pray that you would do a great work in our hearts, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts continually, bring conviction, bring encouragement, bring peace. I pray, Lord, for uh, our community, that you would help us to move forward and to uh, be led by you, to speak to people and to invite people to enjoy the same salvation we do. Lord, I pray for divine appointments. And Lord, uh, I guess, honestly, make it easy for us to talk to people, Lord, and, and to meet them. So... Thank you for being so good. We appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.